Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As the divinely called martyr Barbara suffered in the stadium, she said, Terrible are the present tortures, O judge, but in no wise do I prefer earthly things to the heavenly. Therefore cut and scrape my flesh, and surrender me unto the fire. I depart rejoicing unto Christ my bridegroom. By her entreaties, O Savior, send down thy mercy upon us, and save them that faithfully celebrate her contest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Stout, welcome back. I'll just simply say thank you on behalf of our whole ICC family. We love you. Love it when you're here all the time with us. We love celebrating the feast days together. We love learning from Pope Benedict. And we ask you to do this series because we know that you're not going to bring Dr. Jared Stout. You're bringing Pope Benedict to us during this Advent season. And for that, we thank you and welcome you back to the Institute. Thank you, Father. It's great to be back. I love to be a part of it, of the family here at ICC as well. Okay, now, we're you know, we're making this big pivot. We're going through Jesus of Nazareth and, and we left off right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And so it might seem odd all of a sudden to be going back and looking at the infancy narratives. But what struck me in making this shift is that it didn't really seem odd at all, right? You know, when you think of the themes that Pope Benedict was really interested in at the beginning of the first volume, he was interested in who is Jesus really and what is his mission about? Okay, now we get to volume three, which he said at the beginning, it's not really volume three. It's more like a prologue. He called it an antechamber, you know, an entry point. But we're here in volume three. And what is, what's he interested in? Who's Jesus? And what's his mission? It's, it's the same questions that are coming out. And so it was very seamless. And one of the things that I think is important to note, you know, he started writing the first volume before his papal election. You know, here he becomes Pope and he has to decide, what am I going to do with this? You know, John Paul had another book like that, The Theology of the Body, where he was working on it before he was elected Pope. And actually, while he was elected Pope, he was, he was there in the conclave working on it. And then he released it. But John Paul released it as part of his magisterium. He gave it as Wednesday audiences. And then they were, it was assembled into a book again afterwards. Ratzinger made the decision I'm going to keep writing this. You know that Ratzinger actually sacrificed his career. Yeah, he had a career. Even though he was a priest, 
he was one of the most important teachers of theology in the entire world. Even um, Orthodox and Protestant scholars have studied his work, uh, came to study with him in Germany. And so for him to become Archbishop of Munich and then to become the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and then to be Pope was a real sacrifice for him. He actually wanted to write as his magnum opus a complete work of theology, of church dogmatics. And you can see one little volume that we have that would have been part of that series, and that's his book on eschatology. Um, and so that would have been one volume of this larger work. But it all went out the window. He sacrificed uh, what his own desires were in his career to serve the church. And so at the culmination of all of his teaching, we find this series of books. I mean, this ends up becoming the great work that arose out of his ministry as bishop and pope. Um, and so if the first volume began before his election and then came out early in his pontificate, well, if you look at the date, this third volume came out the last year of his pontificate. And you can kind of see, I, I think, some signs of this. You know, when, you know, a lot of people are just really disappointed in, in his resignation. I mean, it just left me just like speechless when he announced it. I mean, I said, geez, a short German theologian who likes beer. That's never going to happen for me again to have a pope, you know, that close to me. I mean, uh, you know, even though I never met him, but I mean, just so many uh, similarities. You can't tell how short I am here on the camera, but, you know, and, and he's rather short of stature as well. So I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, but I, I really felt like, you know, it was like a father saying, I'm sorry, but I, I can't be your father anymore. And of course, when a pope dies, yeah, that that's part of it. Right. But. But for him just to say, I can't do this, was, was very difficult. But if you look at him, you can look at photographs or video of even his last papal audience, and he looks so frail, almost like you could just reach out and just snap him, you know, like he just uh, was looking that, I think, you know, at that moment, close to death. And I think he lived so much longer, you know, we're coming up on, on the first anniversary of his death here, but I think he lived that much longer because he retired. He actually tried to retire a number of times um, as cardinal, you know, when he was prefect of the CDF. And John Paul eventually said, as long as I am here, you are here. And Ratzinger said, well, I didn't bother asking anymore after that, you know. And so some people say, why did he resign as pope? And the answer is, well, there was no one to say no at that point. <laughs> you know, nobody could say, no, you can't retire. I mean, he wanted to retire long before he was elected pope. But this is his last book. You know, there is a book that actually just came out uh, this last year, but it's just little things that he wrote or little speeches that he wrote. But in terms of an actual book that he wrote from beginning to end, this is the very last book that Joseph Ratzinger wrote as a theologian. And I sense urgency in it. Like he really, I mean, he, he knew, I think, that he was running out of gas. Um, and so there's, there's certain things that, it, you know, when you compare it to the first volume, you can just say like, oh, this is something he could really just sink his teeth into. But no, he, he's, he's moving pretty quickly uh, through the material because I, I think he really wanted to complete the full scope of the life of Jesus. Um, so I kept coming back to that as I was rereading the text this time, this sense of urgency, kind of quickness of wanting to get to the heart of things. And not to get distracted by things as well. 
And I, I told you the best example of this in our study guide. He does not give any sustained attention to the words full of grace in the Annunciation. He actually goes on for paragraphs about rejoice, you know, um, you know, hail um, is more literally rejoice, right? So he, he says, no, instead of hail, we can really understand this as a kind of proclamation of the good news, rejoice. And full of grace can also be translated, you know, you see this in a lot of Bibles, highly favored one, right? Because what is grace? Grace is favor. Um, and so God's favor was poured out upon Mary. And, and so we tend to think of grace as a thing. And you can kind of see this even coming out in the little excerpt that I gave you from another work of Ratzinger on Full of Grace. Grace is not like an object, like, okay, I got all this grace out here. I'm just going to pour all that stuff into Mary, right? I mean, the reason we have grace within us, we talk about sanctifying grace, you know, that makes us holy. It's because God has poured out his favor upon us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the beloved son. We become beloved sons through Jesus. And Jesus is the one who has the father's favor resting upon him. And it rests upon us through Jesus. And it's the same with our lady, right? God's favor rests upon her and he draws her into this complete union with him. And we see that, you know, really, I would say the way that Ratzinger draws out this reality is not a commentary on their words full of grace, but it is looking at Our Lady as the one who receives the word. What's he trying to do in, in this three-volume series of Jesus of Nazareth? What does he really want us to do? He wants us to be like Our Lady. He wants us to receive the word to ponder it in our hearts so that we can actually conceive of Jesus Christ within us. There's a number of times in this narrative where Benedict points to that reality. And Jesus himself points to that reality in Luke's gospel. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers and my sister? Whoever hears the word of God and does it. And some people say, well, that's a slight against Our Lady. No. It isn't. It's praise of Our Lady because she is the one who does that. She receives the word so fully that the word takes flesh within her. And I think this is how Benedict understands this fullness of grace, that the Holy Spirit dwells in her. And the Holy Spirit and the Son have a joint mission, right? You can't separate the mission of the Son and the mission of the Holy Spirit. Mary hears the word. I mean, he even quotes uh, the church fathers to say that she conceives through the ear because she receives the word. She responds to it in her heart, right? Even during the Annunciation, she's pondering it over. Luke keeps coming back to that. She ponders it over in her heart. That's what she does in the text. And, you know, this is why she's not punished when she says, how can this be? Right? Zechariah is punished when he asks the same question, because Zechariah doubts, but Mary wants to receive the word. And you could even think about this very profoundly. God from all eternity speaks a word. Now, God did not have to create. He chose to create. 
And within his creation, he chose to make beings in his image and likeness who could what? Hear the word. The father speaks the son from all eternity. And this is why Our Lady is so significant in the Annunciation. She acts on behalf of us all when she hears the word and responds to it. And this is why it's so significant for us to to be pivoting to this text in Advent, because this is our Advent, to be standing with Our Lady before the word, to receive it so fully that we become pregnant through the power of the Spirit, because the Spirit is there with the Son, that we can become overshadowed by the Spirit, that we can become a tabernacle. Because there's a connection here. At the beginning of John's Gospel, and Benedict points this out in our reading, it says that the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. And so we might think immediately that that means that his humanity is the new Ark of the Covenant. But when you look at Luke's gospel, we see that the Shekinah that Benedict talks about, the cloud of the Spirit, which withdrew from the people of Israel at the time of the exile into Babylon, it's gone, right? The cloud that descended at Mount Sinai and then stayed over the tabernacle, through the desert, into the Promised Land, And then when Solomon dedicates the temple, that holy cloud rests upon the temple. But at the time of the exile, it's gone. And it doesn't come back. When the temple's rebuilt, it doesn't come back. It's now, at the moment of the Annunciation, that the cloud of the Spirit descends upon God's people. And so it's Mary who is the new Ark of the Covenant, the new temple, So how did Jesus pitch his tent among us? Through Our Lady. And that's not to say, of course, that Jesus' own humanity is not the perfect temple, right? It is. But the temple of his own body comes into the world through the tabernacle of Our Lady and her yes. So we are meant in this Advent time to enter into the shoes of Our Lady, but through Our Lady into Israel. There's some beautiful things that Benedict is doing here. I would even say, I think at the beginning of this book, the number one interpretive thing that I see happening is that Benedict wants us to see the Old Testament itself as a whole, as an anticipation of the Messiah. That the whole Old Testament is a yearning for God himself to come to his people. And when Our Lady says fiat, it's not one young woman in a house in Nazareth who utters those words. It is Israel who utters those words through her. And there's a temptation to think that, you know, here the Son of God came into the world, and as John says, but his own received him not. And so we might think, Well, Israel rejects the Messiah when he comes, but they don't. Right now, we might say a majority of Jews did not recognize the Messiah when he came. But Israel, as a whole, not a a numerical whole, right? But as, as an organic whole, Israel did 
receive the Messiah. And that's implied in a number of ways in Benedict's reflection. Who is standing in the place of Israel? Zechariah and Elizabeth. And next week, we're going to see um, Simeon and Anna. But we also see figures like John the Baptist. And one of the most profound points in Benedict's reflection is that John the Baptist, the priest, is the fulfillment of the whole priestly order, saying, behold the Lamb of God. This is the perfect priestly sacrifice here before you. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament led up to the Lamb of God coming into the world. So did Israel receive the Messiah? Yes. Through Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, John the Baptist, and most fully, Our Lady. If you read her Magnificat, you can see that this is the acceptance of the Messiah by Israel. That's what the Magnificat is. It's an extension of her fiat into an entire hymn of praise on behalf of God's people. That salvation has arrived. And there's that beautiful line um, about the angel's revelation to Joseph, that his name will be Jesus. And, and this is where we see, even, even in his urgency and his quickness through the text, that Benedict pulls out the heart of things. He will save his people from his sins. This is why he's given the name Yeshua. This is the new Joshua, right? If you don't know that, Jesus is the Greek form of Yeshua, which is Joshua, right? He's not given the name Moses. He's not given the name David. He's given the name Joshua. What does Joshua do? Joshua defeats God's enemies and brings Israel into the promised land. That's at the heart of Jesus' mission, to defeat the enemies and to bring us to the place where we belong as sons. What is the greatest thing that Jesus does? Well, we see this actually in the genealogies. Matthew's genealogy focuses on Jesus' provenance, right? Where, where did he come from, his origins? Luke's genealogy focuses on Jesus' pedigree in terms of his mission. John's genealogy focuses on Jesus' descendants. And you say, wait, wait a second. There's only two genealogies, Matthew and Luke. What do you mean John's genealogy? Yes, this is also a profound insight that comes out of this text, right? John has a genealogy. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus' genealogy. Take that, Matthew and Luke, right? <laughs> I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that John was very familiar with the Synoptic Gospels. And he writes in a positive sense as a response to them. Not like not a rebuttal of them. No, 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 no. This is why John, for instance, doesn't have the words of institution at the Last Supper. He says, good job, guys, but I'm going to tell you all the things that you missed here, you know, like the new commandment, the washing of the feet, and, you know, Jesus' most profound teaching in, in John 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, 17. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill in the gaps here. And, oh, that's nice that, that you gave his genealogy 
from from Abraham and oh Luke, you even went back all the way to Adam. That's nice, but you kind of forgot something. And the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the beginning of the genealogy. But then he also gives us the end of the genealogy. And those who believe in him have a birth not by flesh and blood, not by any earthly power, not by the will of men, right? That the will, what would be the will of men? It's not even our choice, right? But it is by faith, it's by the gift of grace, this favor once again, that we are given the grace of adoption, that we become sons in the Son. This is what it means to come into the promised land with the new Joshua. That is his victory, won by his own blood, that we become sons of the Father. This is his mission. And I love how Benedict draws out that for the Jews, it was too little and too much. Oh, you you want to save us from our sins? Yeah, that's nice. But there's these guys here, you know, the Romans kind of ruling over the Holy Land. If you could get rid of them. No, no, no. You're, you're going to be killed by them? That's the opposite. Ah, save us from our sins, you know? So too little but at the same time, too much. You know, what more could you want? And, and I even kind of think of this with our own prayers, right? God, if you could just do this, if you could just do that, can you solve, you solve this problem? Don't you see what's happening in the world? Don't you see what's happening in the church? Where are you? Oh, I'm, I'm here. I'm forgiving your sins, continuing to give you the grace of adoption. I'm opening up the promised land for you. We're still like the Jews, you know, but then they object. No, 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 no. You can't do that. We know who you are. You're the carpenter's son. We know where you are from. And then you say you're going to forgive our sins. And I love how Benedict says the way to understand the message of the angel to Joseph is to look at the healing of the paralytic. Isn't that a beautiful example of the canonical reading, right? What's a canonical reading? Uh, Benedict takes this from Brevard Childs, an American scholar, to say that we have to read all the books of the Bible together as a whole. And you can see this even the way that we're reading the New Testament, reading it as a whole, reading passages in light of one another. And when the paralytic is, is taken down through the roof, Benedict says, what did his friends want? His friends obviously loved him very much. They put him down through a roof. I mean, think about that. Ripping somebody's roof apart so that their friend who was paralyzed could walk again. That's love. I mean, wow. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And you can imagine, that's nice, Jesus. I mean, anybody could say that, right? Your sins are forgiven. But to show that he truly had that authority, he said, rise and walk. Jesus didn't come to heal the sick, meaning the essence of the kingdom is not the resolution of material difficulties. Does that mean that Jesus doesn't heal the sick? 
talk to any priest and, and they'll give you examples of healings, physical healings that have happened through the anointing of the sick. Physical healings still happen. But Jesus did not inaugurate the kingdom to heal sickness, material sickness, even though that remains today a sign of the kingdom. It's a sign. But the sign points us to the essence of the kingdom. What's the essence of the kingdom? Well, this takes us back to our reading last week. Okay. Is the kingdom just Jesus himself? Benedict says, yes and no, but, the, but there's more. The essence of the kingdom is that the Son of God, who is one with the Father, has become man. And because he has become man, we can become sons. That is the kingdom of God. And because this little child has been born to us through the faith of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we can become children of God. And this is how we see our reading today is very complementary to the reading the last two weeks. Because Benedict is all about this, the appearance of the kingdom through Jesus. And that begins in the incarnation itself. Takes us to this question, where are you from? It's a question from Pilate, right? Pilate, you know, was pretty good. You know, we have to give him credit at asking questions. What is truth? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Where are you from? And when Pilate says that, it's because he sees something in Jesus. Where are you from? He wants to know. But in asking that question, Benedict wants us to answer it. What does he say? This is on Roman numeral 12, page 12. And, and there was a typo in my quotation of it. He says, I'm writing this book to help many people toward and alongside Jesus. So he said, I'm going to contemplate the word. I want you to contemplate it with me. And so in asking this question, where are you from? He wants us to answer it. Now, there's three ways in which I think Benedict continues to deepen his explanation of his hermeneutics for us. Right? What's hermeneutic? It is a method of interpretation. And when we look at the, the question within the question here, where are you from? The only way that you can answer that question is through another question. Who are you? The two are bound up together. To know where Jesus comes from, we have to know who he is. Because if we're just looking at his humanity, we'd say, okay, it comes from this family who lives in Nazareth. Jesus was not a carpenter. It's The word is actually builder in Greek, right? Jesus is a builder working with his father, Joseph, who was a builder. We know where you're from. But Jesus asked his disciples... Who do you say that I am? Do you say that I am simply the builder from Nazareth? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He sees farther. Right? Really, we have to say that Jesus has a dual identity. And that's what Benedict wants us to see. Where are you from? We have two different genealogies here. Well, on the one hand, Jesus is the son of David. And by the way, Joseph is Jesus' real father, not biological father. 
But Joseph is a real father. He's his legal father, his adoptive father, and that's a real fatherhood. And because Joseph is really the father of Jesus in that sense, that legal sense, that adoptive sense, Jesus is the son of David, but he's also the son of the father. We have to view it from both perspectives. If we were to say, well, Jesus is, he's just the son of the father, the son of God, the father, that's not enough either because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched his tent among us. And so we have to be able to answer that question by saying, well, he is the son of Joseph, the carpenter. And he's called that in John's gospel, the son of Joseph. But then we also have to say, but he is the son of the father. He doesn't have a biological father because God ultimately is his father. And the reason why I introduced that in light of Benedict's hermeneutics is because Benedict says that the Bible is something that is alive and relevant to us today and speaks to us now. And so when Jesus asked that question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? He is asking that question of us, and we have to be prepared to answer it. And this is what Pope Benedict is helping us to do, to answer this question. And so he looks at this. I, I, I want to say that there are three hermeneutical principles that come out of the, of the beginning of this first volume. One, we looked at the beginning of the first volume to see how Benedict said that we need to attend both to the historical context and to faith in order to understand the Bible as a whole. He returns to that, but this time he says, we need to attend to the meaning of the human author. And in this case, we're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and there are things that we can determine. What are some relevant things about the human authors of the Gospels? Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, and there are a number of ways we can see that. Even in the genealogy, he's concerned to show Jesus as the son of Abraham and the son of David. Luke who was a Gentile, he had a Gentile father, he is writing to a Gentile audience. And that shapes his gospel as a whole, including his genealogy. He wants to show that Jesus is the son of Adam because he's going to be a new Adam stretching out to all of humanity, not just to the Jews. So that's important. And we can look at the way that John um, was more contemplative. He is the disciple who rested upon Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He had this intimacy with Jesus that comes out and drawing out that reality of sonship for us, even at the very beginning of his gospel. So those are different approaches of human authors. But ultimately, Benedict says, because God is the primary author of all of the books of the Bible, well, one, that's how they have their inner unity, because they have one primary author. But two, that gives them continuing relevance. And it makes me think of the example, like right now, my son, Daniel, who's a sophomore in high school, he's reading Herodotus, right? The, the, the Greek historian, right? And when you read Herodotus, you're trying to think, okay, did he actually go to Egypt like he said he did? What's he really saying about the Persians? But it's all about what is Herodotus saying? Why is he saying it? And what's the context in which he's saying it? That's a document that is speaking to us from the past over, you know, roughly 2,500 years ago. 
the gospel writers are not simply speaking to us from the distant past. They are speaking to us in the present because the primary author of the gospels is God. Who do you say that I am? You. All of you right now. The gospels are living. And we're drawn into the realities of them. Secondly, we see a distinction in some of these Old Testament prophecies. Some of them, you know, really had a context at the time. So let's look at, you know, one example. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And this comes from the time of the prophets, but it was reminding Israel that Israel as a whole, right? You are God's son, and he called you out of slavery in Egypt. But Matthew uses that same prophecy, this prophetic statement, to speak of Jesus coming out of Egypt, you know, when he was fleeing from Herod back into the Holy Land. And so that is a text that has, this is something that I've even written a scholarly paper about, a multiple sense, right? There's a multiple literal sense that the words apply in their original context to the the original Exodus, but that they also become a prophecy of the Messiah, literally, that their words indicate that Jesus is being called out of Egypt. Benedict also called this a fuller sense, the sense of plenior, right? A fuller sense of the text, that the text can actually grow and expand in its literal meaning as it's reinterpreted in the New Testament. But there are other passages, like Isaiah's famous prophecy of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. Now, I've actually read certain scholars that that want to talk about maybe like a surprising birth, you know, that happened um, to Hezekiah, to Ahaz, the, the king, sorry. And, um, you know, Ahaz was actually doubting God. He was actually trying to make an alliance against God's will with God's enemy, uh, the Assyrians. And God said, I'm going to give you a sign. Now, Benedict says that there's no convincing fulfillment of that prophecy in the historical context, and that therefore it's a kind of hanging prophecy that's awaiting its fulfillment in the New Testament, right? So you can see two different prophecies, one fulfilled at the time and then fulfilled in a deeper or a fuller way in the New Testament, the other without a fulfillment at the time and is pointing towards something. You could say like the suffering servant. There are ways in which you can look at Israel's suffering during the exile as at least a partial fulfillment of the suffering servant. But there are aspects of that prophecy, which happens later in Isaiah, that go beyond anything that you could simply pin down at the time of the exile. And it's it's awaiting its fulfillment in Jesus. So that's an important distinction that, that Benedict makes in the way in which the New Testament is interpreting the Old Testament. But the third point, I want to draw out, you know, even a farther distinction. Benedict refers a few times to the fact that people almost like accuse the infancy narratives of kind of like cheap proof texting. Out of Egypt, I have called my son as one example. How did the evangelists try to like shore up the infancy narratives by finding any kind of connections 
that they could in the Old Testament, kind of dropping them into the infancy narratives, right? This proof texting is what we call that. Benedict says, no, that's not really what's happening here. Actually, the infancy narratives are teaching us how to read the Old Testament. It's not that they were going back to the Old Testament and trying to use that as the foundation for what they were saying in the New Testament. He said, no, 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 no. The events of the New Testament themselves are what actually show the meaning of what happened before, even if it had a fulfillment in the original context. In a way, nothing that happened in the Old Testament could fully be understood until the Son of God entered into the story to fulfill not just some proof texts here and there, but to fulfill truly every part of the story. Everything in the Old Testament, everything, without exception, finds its deepest meaning and therefore its deepest interpretation in light of the Incarnation. And the evangelists are helping us to see that. And so it's not simply trying to strengthen their text, what they're writing, by pulling in these little tidbits here and there. It's helping us to see the whole story is coming together now. Everything you thought you understood, you haven't understood until now. This is it. This is the turning point. The hinge that gives everything else meaning. And so there it is. This is the, the, the essential thing that Benedict, I think, is doing. Helping us to understand how the whole Bible coheres around the incarnation. Even everything else that happens after the incarnation finds meaning in light of the Son of God coming to us to save us from our sins. That revelation of the name of Jesus, what does, what does the name Jesus mean? It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh himself saves. Moses at the burning bush received the divine name, Yahweh, I am. Okay? And it was so holy that they wouldn't even speak it. That's why when you see L-O-R-D, all caps, that's Yahweh in the Bible. But the name was seen to be so holy that it couldn't be written. It couldn't be said. And now the Savior comes, and his name literally means Yahweh saves. And he doesn't save us just by freeing us from slavery like he did by drawing Israel out of Egypt. He saves by recreating humanity, doing something beyond any prophecy, beyond any expectation or even dream. And, you know, Benedict, he, he seems really concerned with the fact as a whole that people treat Jesus like a myth. He mentions that in volume one. And then here it is. This is another commonality coming out of volume three. He's concerned that people view the infancy narratives as a myth. And he says, you know what? The myths are nice, nice stories. And they represent human longing. And they also represent the gods kind of coming down to our level and intermixing with us and doing all these, you know, different kinds of things. Things that I shouldn't repeat right now, right? You know? <laughs> 
Uh, they do all these human-like things. And so people say, oh, look, look, look. You know, um, when Zeus rapes Europa or something like this, you know, like uh, it's a sign, you know, that, you know, really what the, what the evangelists were doing is they're just copying all of these other myths. They're trying to do something similar. And Benedict says, there may be some interconnection that there was maybe some dark and limited, you know, glimpse of, of a desire for God to come down to us. But the infancy narratives, one, are deeply rooted in the Old Testament, not pagan myths. Two, they exceed any human imagining. For anyone who really understands the vision of the New Testament, it is far beyond even the wildest imagination of any myth. Okay, now, you know, some of my kids say to me, you know, Dad, have you ever seen miracles? Oh, I, I've seen many miracles. Have you? I guess I can. Have you seen miracles? But I'll say to you tonight, you have witnessed a miracle. I am sick. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm so sick that I couldn't recite one prayer in our family rosary tonight without going into a coughing fit. And I just talked for 45 minutes and I only coughed once. You just witnessed a miracle. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, uh, for that gift. And I did ask. I said, Lord, you know, help, you know, help me. Guide, guide me in this teaching. So, amen. Thank you, Lord. Um, okay. Now, the, the main question that I put out for all of you to really think about is we, we switched into the third volume so that we could read it during Advent. What little nuggets did you see coming out of this reading to help you in your own meditation during this time of Advent. Okay, now, as you're thinking about that, there, there is one more point that I want to make. And so we can also think about this for our discussions. But I told you what I think Ratzinger is trying to do, that he is really trying to help us to understand how the Old and New Testaments fit together and really cohere. Um, but I want to actually turn to page 127. So this is not in our reading for today. Um, but I want to draw out one, one last thing from our reading as we're already thinking about this first um, discussion point. This is at the bottom of, of what is this? The very, the very last page of, of this text. It becomes quite apparent that he, Jesus, of course, is true man and true God as the church's faith expresses it. The interplay between the two is something that we cannot ultimately define. It remains a mystery, and yet it emerges quite concretely in the short narrative about the 12-year-old Jesus that he's talking about. At the same time, this story opens a door to the figure of Jesus as a whole, which is what the Gospels go on to recount. Now, why do I mention that? Ratzinger seems very comfortable with mystery, with paradox, in unresolved contradictions and difficulties in our text. There's a number of places where we see this. One, he mentions that the genealogies in Matthew and Luke contradict. He says there's only a few common names. And he shows the, the different approach of the two evangelists, but he doesn't try to reconcile them. What are two traditional reconciliations? One, 
many people say that because Luke is so rooted in Mary's perspective in his narrative, that he may actually be giving Mary's genealogy. Another proposed resolution is that Joseph himself may have been adopted like Jesus, and that he may have had distinct genealogies in the line of David, adopted by a family member also in the same family. That's one. Two, I do not know man. And he says, well, Augustine put this forward as a sign that Our Lady was committed to celibacy. Why would a woman who was already married, by the way, right? Joseph had not taken her into her home, but betrothal in Israel's culture was already the beginning of marriage, right? So she's a married woman, essentially. And she says, how can this be? I do not know man. And so the church has traditionally said that this is already a sign of her perpetual virginity. Now, Benedict doesn't really go into their perpetual virginity very much, but the church teaches dogmatically that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. That was a miraculous birth, which he he doesn't go into that. He also says that there's no recent evidence that there were what we call Josephite marriages. We call them after that after St. Joseph, a celibate marriage. But actually, we've talked about the Essenes. There now is evidence that's been uncovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls that there that the, there were Essenes who did have Josephite marriages at the time of Jesus. So, so that's actually some uh, one area where he hasn't, you know, wasn't fully up to speed with some of the more recent developments, and then Joseph's divorce, intended divorce. So, many church fathers and other spiritual writers have said this: Do you really think? that Joseph suspected Our Lady of adultery. Really. He knew her, right? Um, And so when she becomes pregnant in a way that is inexplicable, he decides to divorce her quietly uh, because this is something unfolding that is beyond him and in his own estimation, right? I cannot comprehend what is happening. I'm obviously not in the know of what's happening, right? Because he hasn't been filled in by the angel yet. And so I'm going to remove myself from this situation, right? That's how many spiritual writers in the church's history have interpreted that. Benedict just takes it more at face value, say, well, he saw that she was pregnant. He's a just man. So the law says, to, you know, that if a woman is pregnant outside of marriage, a married woman, that she should be divorced. So that's it, right? And so he's willing to just kind of sit with the easiest and most straightforward reading And I would kind of also throw this one out here as well, simply skipping over an explanation of what the words full of grace mean. He does not therefore need to wade into, you know, does this mean that Mary is conceived immaculately? Now, he obviously believed that, and he believed that the words full of grace were connected to the immaculate conception, because I even gave you an example of where he goes there and says that as Pope. So why does he not want to say that and go into that in this text. And I would say, well, I think he, in all of these cases, I think he's trying to avoid getting bogged down in theological controversies and disputed points and difficulties of exegesis so that he can focus on his overarching goals, um, which are trying to help us to enter into the significance of the incarnation, I think, with fresh eyes. Now, I think if he maybe wasn't 
at the end of, you know, the the kind of of the line of his strength and at the end of his papacy, he probably would have had more strength to go into that, right? Um, so anyway, that's my take on those points. And so I'll put those out there. But now um, we can enter into that discussion of how this text relate to Advent. And from there, we can talk about any of those controversial points if you'd like to do that as well. But let's start with Advent first. Um, and so feel free to, to just kind of raise your hand. So Madison, it looks like your hand's up. So go ahead, get us started here. I listened to your first talk. And um, my question is, I know that you talked about in the first lecture, the uh, cities of Joshua and them being burned. And I was wondering if you have ever given historical perspective of the the names of Jesus, uh, Big Joshua, in Hebrew uh, to the Old Testament events or any other names he's been given, like um, King of Kings or Prince of Peace, or any of those you know, classic Christmas names we're known to know. Yeah, and the, the one that that Benedict mentions is Emmanuel. Right. And so he says that Emmanuel, because that goes back to the prophecy in Isaiah, right? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be named Emmanuel. Um, and so he says that that's not so much a name, but a way of understanding who Jesus is, because Emmanuel means God with us. And that really is the essence of, uh, of, of Jesus's identity. Of course, there are Prince of Peace is is one of the biggest ones, right? And so if we if we talk about Joshua, Joshua is obviously a military commander. Now, who is Joshua fighting? Um, if you look at the clans that God said to eradicate from Cana, they were called giant clans. And the word giant should actually be understood more like bully or tyrant rather than somebody who's just large of size. And actually, there's a lot of evidence for this, and they were Nephilim in, in Hebrew was the term. And Nephilim was something spread throughout the, the entire culture of the Middle East. And it were, it were rulers who claimed to be descendants of the gods. They were actually ritually conceived by the gods who then became representatives of them acting on their behalf in the world. Well, the gods of the heathens are demons. And so these cultures were given over to the, the to demonic practices, the burning of their own children, um, and to a lot of other unjust deeds and sexual immorality. And so God said that their iniquity had come to a fullness and that they needed to be removed from the land so that the land itself could be cleansed and that Israel could be set apart for him in the land. So what's interesting, the reason I give that background is because if Joshua was going against demonic forces, not just clearing out random people who just happen to be living in Cana, but actual people who are under the sway of demons and are dominated by demons, then we see that Jesus' warfare actually has more of a connection to Joshua than you might think, because he's going against the same group of demons, right? He's trying to break this demonic dominion against us. And this is why he can be a warrior and the prince of peace at the same time. So that is how I, I would connect some of those uh, titles of Jesus. Okay. Yeah. I, I just, I, I had that like come to mind when you said Yah Yahweh and genealogy and Joshua and 
just those names and it was it made me think of the historical perspective like you were talking about and things like that so yeah and, and the, if we call the burning of the bushes and all that yeah 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 and so if we call jesus jesus christ it means yahweh saves and jesus is the messiah that's essentially what we're saying christ means messiah so we say yeah. you know jesus is the savior who is the messiah that's what jesus christ means right but that's important because we do spend a lot of time praying about the names of Jesus, even the the O antiphons of Advent, O Emmanuel, O Son of David, right? We 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 are really invoking um, so many aspects of Jesus's mission, and so the fact that he's given the name Jesus and not Emmanuel, God is pointing us to his mission, right? His identity is to save us. On that point, Doctor Kathleen, when you first asked the question. Uh, Kathleen wrote, wrote in uh, saying that she feels that the revelation of the New Testament in the Old Testament has become so much more apparent in this study. And uh, and so it, the question that you put at the very beginning of your study guide, uh, you know, what does this what, what does the reading of this bring to our Advent prayer um, for me? And I, and I would expect for many others, like the importance of the expectation if there is no, if if you have no idea of what a Messiah is, right, or 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 who you're waiting for, how can you recognize him? How can you answer that question? Who do you say that I am? And I'm also thinking too, right? During our Advent prayer, I mentioned about putting ourselves into the into the the feet of Mary, and through her into the feet of Israel, because Israel certainly had an understanding that things were not right. There's no Davidic king. The temple that they had was built by Herod, and so it was even somewhat defiled. Um, like I said, God's presence is not resting over this temple. And obviously, the Romans are occupying the Holy Land. They had a sense that they needed liberation. They needed redemption. And that is something that we really can enter into during our Advent prayer. Uh, but Cheryl, go ahead. Yes, you were talking about what, what we're hearing that could be part of our Advent prayer. And uh, I'm just really grateful to see his treatment of the annunciations to Zachariah and Elizabeth, because I was always puzzled by the fact that the angel would speak to Zachariah and he would be, first he was troubled, and as Benedict says, they were both troubled. And then Zachariah says, well, how can this be? You know, I'm an old man, my wife advanced in years. And in a sense, when Our Lady says, how can this be since I know not my, it sounds like the same question because the words are more or less the same mm-hmm. his statement that Zacharias how can this be is in effect a pushback well he could have said it as well that can't happen you know I'm already too old and my wife's too old whereas our ladies was a genuine pondering of okay I'm I accept it I'd just like a little more clarification if possible as to how this is <laughs> going to come about. So that's just very helpful for me. That's something I'm going to be pondering in as God speaks to us, encounters us, you know, speaks to me. Yeah. And, you know, Benedict, it's something else to draw out here, right, is, you know, he he gives us this beautiful sermon of St. Bernard. I think it's on page 36. And he's, he's not afraid of spiritual interpretation of scripture. So I you know, when he kind of passes over some of those more deeper and spiritual interpretations, it's not like he's opposed to that. So that makes the whole thing more puzzling. But 
Um, he says, uh, this is on page 36, about 10 to 12 lines down here. Now, God seeks to enter the world anew. He knocks at Mary's door. He needs human freedom. The only way he can redeem man who he was who was created free is by means of a free yes to his will. And it makes me think of these two figures that he introduced here, Zechariah and Mary, as two aspects of the life of Israel. Right? How often did Israel doubt God's promises um, and not really show that that fullness of faith? I mean, Zechariah was a believing and just man, but even still, right, he was holding back, you know, his com- complete entrance into the will of God, which of course exceeds his ability to comprehend. And Mary couldn't comprehend the promise either, even as it was being fulfilled in her. Um, but but I think that that's beautiful when when we think about the two different responses and the, the way that Benedict draws out freedom here. And we can think about that for ourselves. You know, God isn't forcing me to do certain things, right? You say, why am I not a saint? Well, it's not God's fault <laughs> that you're not a saint, you know. Now, we can only blame one person here. Um, And so we can think about Mary's yes in light of that, right? How can I say yes to God more fully? How can I be like her in her fiat? Georgie, uh, go ahead. Yes, thank you. You know, I I think along those lines, what you were just saying is is kind of how I'm seeing this is, you know, Mary answers, behold, I'm the handmaid of the Lord. And I think as part of this understanding of who is Jesus is also finding out who we are. And I think she was able to know and to accept and to say yes, because she knew who she was in relation to God. I'm the handmaid of the Lord. So for me, as I read this, it's it's, it's that exploration of who am I in relation? You know, who, who am I here right now? What is my role? You know, and there's that whole section that Pope Benedict uh, talks about, you know, that it, it about Israel's womb. And how Jesus comes, you know, the, the coming into the womb of Israel, you know, and being birthed in us. And it's, it's just so mystical. It's something like just to meditate on. And so that's where I'm going this Advent. I'm going to just spend some time in that. Wasn't that incredible? You know, rejoice, daughter Zion, for in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And you say, okay, I've heard that in Advent a lot of times, but no, 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 stop. The actual translation should be because in your womb is the Holy One of Israel. Are you kidding me? I mean, that that is truly incredible. I mean, there's certain things that when, when you look at some of these prophecies, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, or like I mentioned the suffering servant, that's another one. In your womb. I mean, that's a prophecy. We should be talking about that. I mean, God is saying, Israel, I'm coming into your womb. And you know, and I think Benedict indicates this, but we can really get into this more deeply. Mary is Israel. Mary is also the church, because guess what? The church is Israel in the world right now. And Benedict's always very clear to say that God has not disavowed his people Israel. So that's not an anti-Israel thing. But um, the, the fullness of the life of Israel, of God's chosen people right now, is the church. And Mary is the bridge between the old Israel and the new Israel. She speaks on behalf of Israel, rejoice, daughter Zion, for in your womb is the Holy One of Israel, from Zephaniah. 
right? And as the Lord comes into her womb, right, this is this is the beginning of this new people of God, the church, the new Israel, which is destined for all nations uh, because the gifts given to Israel, and this comes out a number of times in our reading, they are meant to be a light to all the nations. That'll come out even more next week. Mara, go ahead. Well, my meditation is that I didn't get an answer because I'm going to keep meditating on Isaiah. I was a little disappointed because I was hoping to get an answer, and then there was no answer when Isaiah responds to Ahaz, ask the Lord for the sign. And then Pope Benedict says, you know, in what we read, that there is no nothing in history that corresponds to that verse. So what does that, why is there? Because that was always my question. All of the sudden, he says that to Ahaz. Where did that come from? You see what I'm saying? And and yeah. And there is no answer. And so I guess I'll keep meditating on it until I get an answer. But uh, on the other thing that you were talking about, it reminds me, in the previous uh, subject, it also reminds me of true devotion. Uh, there is a part on true devotion that says that, that we don't know Jesus because we don't know Mary. So there is the relation there on that. And that's in St. Louis-Marie de Montfort. So, but those are my two points that I'm going to be thinking about why that answer to Ahas. Yeah. And I think on the second point, I would simply say that Jesus has given everything that he has to us. And so his heavenly father becomes our heavenly father. His divine spirit, the Holy Spirit becomes our spirit. His mother becomes our mother. And I mean, he literally says that. And I think that's why John calls himself the beloved disciple, because his role is meant to be more than himself. And so Jesus says to the beloved disciple, that's you, behold your mother. And that also means that Joseph um, is our father as well. And Anne and Joachim are our grandparents, etc. cetera, all, all these wonderful gifts. Uh, Andrew, go ahead. Yes, the popular notion that uh, St. Joseph wanted to divorce Mary because he, he didn't want to embarrass her or shame her. He wanted to divorce her quietly uh, because of her pregnancy. But uh, what's your comment on the idea that uh, St. Joseph, being a just man, uh, wanted to divorce, uh, or rather leave Mary quietly because he felt so thoroughly unworthy to be the husband, to be the spouse, of this uh, great mother of God. I mean, I know that uh, he just feel unworthy to be to be married to her. And therefore he, he felt as an unworthy vessel, instrument of God. That, that's why he wants to say yeah. no, not me perhaps, you know, and, but he has to be reaffirmed by in his dream by the angel, no, you, you take Mary. <laughs> what, yeah, I'm this? only going to say one thing on this. And that's because I want to respect Benedict's approach. And so Benedict wants to be rooted in the text and help us to see the connection of Old and New Testament, et cetera. Okay, fine. Two, two comments then, building on the text itself. What does the angel say to Joseph? Joseph, do not fear to take Mary into your home. He was afraid. 
That's what I would say that the text says. And, and that's how, I mean, if I were writing a commentary and I, and I didn't simply want to put forward the church's kind of more mystical interpretation um, as, you know, the, the way to understand the text, I would say Joseph was afraid because that's what the angel says to him. Do not be afraid. The other thing I would say is that if Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant, and we see that very clearly in the text in many ways, both in the Annunciation and then also in the Visitation, which we'll get to, that he had reason to be afraid. Yeah, I mean, right. Um, and Elizabeth gives us some indication of this. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She, it's like she recoils in fear almost, right? And so there is something awesome happening that the Shekinah cloud of God has descended upon the earth once again upon one young woman. And it struck fear in those who perceived it. Okay, now, um, since we're running out of time, I want to open it up now just for any other questions about the text. So, Peter, I'll, I'll turn it over uh, to you now. Super, super. We've got a ton queued up already, so we'll uh, we'll jump right into those. Uh, let's start with one from Karen. She asked what Pope Benedict means by the apocalyptic formula that divides the world into 12 uh, eras that he mentions on page 9. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not surprised you had that question. I was, I was anticipating this one. So when he's looking at the way that Matthew divides his gospel, it's three series of 14 generations. And the, the name David had a numerical value of 14. So David, David, David. Luke, on the other hand, has 77 generations. And so if you divide that evenly, right, you get 11 uh, groups of seven, unlike Matthew's three groups of 14. And so what could what could that mean? Uh, I mean, there's a number of things, but Benedict said there was a Jewish tradition that the history of creation would be divided into 12 parts. And so what he's essentially saying is the last time has begun, right? This is the last age. And, and you hear that uh, term being used often um, until the end of the age, right? That there's a number of ages of the of the world. And Jesus himself says, basically, that this is the final age, right? And that he will come again at the end of the age. I loved his point, too, on, on numerology or numbers, uh, connecting to the prophecy of Daniel, the 70 weeks mm -hmm. uh, from that scholar, Lauren Tan. Uh, the math does check out. I was thinking about that. <laughs> In terms of you know gestation, if 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 six months is two trimesters at thirteen weeks each, that's twenty six weeks. You've got uh, then Jesus's uh, Jesus's full term plus about six weeks before uh, being presented in the temple, forty days, and boom, you've got seventy weeks. It's incredible. Right. So if you didn't catch that, Daniel talks about seventy weeks before the Lord Himself appears in the temple, and that there are literally seventy weeks from the Annunciation to Zechariah in the temple, in the temple, till Jesus himself comes to the temple, right? So that's what Peter's referring to. Amazing. Super awesome. Okay. Uh, this person writes in asking, in Mary's womb uh, is Jesus Christ. Are we not also in her womb uh, when we are in Jesus being, and then, you know, coming to be with Jesus through Mary uh, as our mother? Yeah. So I would say this at least. 
that we are members of the body. St. Paul talks about that so much. And of course, that's what the Eucharist is. We become one flesh with the Son of God. And where does Jesus' flesh come from? From the womb of Our Lady. So I don't know about going back into the womb of Our Lady, but Jesus' humanity at least comes from the womb of Our Lady. So in that sense, that is where we come from in a spiritual sense. Absolutely. Inez asks if you could clarify what uh, Pope Benedict says about Mary's story not being told until after she dies. Uh, what What's going on there? So, you know, there's an ancient tradition that Luke painted a portrait of Our Lady. And we can say this at least, that whether or not he painted one with paint, he painted one with words. And that there's a there's a very strong indication that Luke, who was a Gentile, and he has he his gospel has the best Greek, right? Because he's a gent, he's a doctor by tradition, who's a well-educated Greek. Um, but then when you look at the beginning of his gospel, there are a number of phrases, unlike the rest of his gospel, which have what we call Semeticisms, and that is Greek, that is not drawing upon Greek thought and language usage but refers back to Hebrew and Aramaic usage. And so it's Greek trying to adapt to the way that you would say something in Aramaic. So what does that indicate? That Luke was drawing upon a pre-existing tradition for his infancy narrative. And what does he tell us? That the most important moments of this narrative are pondered by Our Lady within her heart. And he's indicating to us that she is the one who preserved these memories. I mean, just think about it. That's literally what, what he's saying. Okay, these things that were happening around the birth of Jesus, she kept them and pondered them in her heart. And now I'm telling you about them. Ta-da! You know? Now, Benedict also referred to a kind of intimacy of these memories. You can imagine that. Mother to son these important things that she cherished. These are family stories. And, and you may not know this, but Jesus' family ran the church in the Holy Land. Um, now, James the Greater was the first bishop of Jerusalem. But after that, there's a number of Jesus' relatives who served as bishop of Jerusalem, according to tradition. Um, James the Less and the apostle um, Jude were also Jesus' relatives, right? So, um, there were a number of family traditions preserved in the early church, and the infancy narrative seemed to be one of them. Doctor, could you uh, uh, elaborate, okay, on page 26 and then later on page 28, uh, could you elaborate on the etymological point that he's making with the Greek word kaire uh, and charis and para, joy, rejoice? Etc. So kare is a vocative, what we call vocative, right? When you're speaking to somebody. And um, it's related to the Greek word for joy. Um, and it's also related to the Greek word for grace, that favor. And so basically when the angel comes, he says to Mary, rejoice. And he says, Benedict says it's related to the proclamation of the good news itself, right? The, you know, 
when the angels speak to the to the shepherds, right? They're saying, rejoice, rejoice, right? Because these are the, the, the best news that could be given. And so he's saying, rather than the normal, the Greeks would say kairé as a, as a greeting, right? But in, in, in Aramaic or the Hebrew tradition, they would say shalom, peace. So the angel doesn't say to Mary, peace. He says, rejoice. And so basically he's telling her that the greatest joy ever is going to be fulfilled right now. Not only the longings of Israel, but the longings of all humanity. And so rejoice and kikara tomene, right, is, is full of grace, right? So um, rejoice, you one who is basically full of this, you know, cause of joy and this favor that you have from God. Um and so there, it's very much like the two words um, are drawn together. So this is on 28, rejoice full of grace. One farther aspect of the greeting, kare, is worthy of note, the connection between joy and grace. In Greek, the two words, joy and grace, kara and karis, are derived from the same root. Joy and grace belong together. So rejoice, basically, you won who has the fullness of joy, you you know, you one who bear the, this great favor within you. He's saying that he greets her that way, possibly because of who she is and what she bears within her, this fullness. What does he say in the, in the reading that I gave you? That he thinks that grace ultimately is a relational term. This could be translated, full of grace could be translated, and this is in my handout on the third page. You are full of the Holy Spirit. Your life is intimately connected to God. You know, so you you have the very source of joy within you. So, and he says that Mary is holy, a holy, open human being, one who has opened herself entirely, who has placed herself in God's hand boldly, limitlessly, and without fear for her own fate. So, She's completely and utterly abandoned to God. She's completely united to God in this fullness of grace, which is why she can rejoice and why all of us can rejoice. So he's trying to connect these these two words together. Awesome. Um, one last question then on the point of uh, St. Joseph. Um, and before I before I read this from Cecilia, uh, again, something that struck me so, so much from Pope Benedict's uh, writings on Joseph as a just man um, being actually convinced by the dream, right? That's something I think that we just gloss over so quickly, but he actually had uh, such faith and expectation to put it into action immediately. It's in incredible. But um, Cecilia writes, and asked, so just a note yeah, there before sorry. the question. <laughs> yeah. So how, do, how does the angel always speak to him in dreams? Who's his namesake, right? Joseph of Egypt and even goes into Egypt, right? The first Joseph is brought down into Egypt and he has these dreams both before and after he goes to Egypt. The new Joseph has the same. God speaks to him in dreams. He goes down to Egypt. Even in Egypt, he also has a dream. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. And to your point about being afraid, I, I've never had a dream that I took so seriously the next morning. Uh, so if I did, I certainly would be would be rattled. <laughs> um, but going back to the point of of, of Joseph and his, and his pondering his divorce, Cecilia asks, um, I've often wondered why Mary didn't just explain to Joseph what happened. Is there some conceivable reason that she would not have? Probably the same reason that 
this would have been guarded. The, the whole infancy narrative is guarded as this kind of family secret for, for a similar reason. Benedict reflects upon Mary as the one who contemplates the word. She receives the, the message of the angel in silence. Traditionally, we show her, even in prayer, reading the scriptures, and we, we value speech a lot, right? You know, uh, teaching and, and selling and arguing. and God values silence. There's a number of ways in which we can see this. And, and when you're in the Holy of Holies, what can you say? Right? You say nothing, right? You, you, you're utterly abandoned before God. Joseph himself doesn't speak at all in the narrative of the Gospels, speaking of silence. And there are certain things that can't even be said. Why did Mary not just tell Joseph what happened? God didn't tell her to. <laughs> it's interesting. She, she does go in haste to Elizabeth, and she does get pro proclaim, right, you know, God's work of salvation. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. So there's something about silence, speaking, of God himself having to tell Joseph of the very few words of Our Lady in Scripture, no words of Joseph in Scripture, Jesus himself going out in silence before the Father in the wilderness to pray often, including the 40 days that we read about uh, last week. So I think there's something that we can say about silence with God, which is itself pregnant. Cardinal Seurat has a great book on silence, The Power of Silence. And I, I would recommend that for meditation as well. But but he talks about the, the actually the fullness of silence. And Mary clearly did not go around telling anyone about the Annunciation because what did people say in Nazareth? Aren't you the carpenter's son? We know, we know where you're from. And so there, there are mysteries beyond speech. And yet there's also a time of proclamation. And so Mary herself does proclaim the greatness of the Lord at the right moment. And so we have to say, what is she doing there? If you look at the Magnificat, she's not saying, Joseph, let me take you in on God's secrets. Let me tell you the way in which this is going to happen. Well, one... Joseph's the head of the family. Okay, so there's maybe something to be said for that, that she's allowing him to lead, to take the initiative here. Um, and that there is actually a fullness of time in which Jesus sends out preachers to the tribes of Israel. He says, don't go to the Gentiles. Only go to the tribes of Israel. And then only at the Annunciation does he then tell them to go to the nations. And so it's interesting, right, when you think of the proclamation to Our Lady, which she preserves in her heart. That's what she does with it, right? And then you think of the star proclaiming to the wise men. But who's the first one to reveal the identity of Jesus? Well, you have John the Baptist who does it in a mysterious way. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. That's the mission. Just like his name, the, the mission is revealed, just like to Joseph, if we make a parallel here. Joseph is told his name is Joshua, and he will save his people from his sins. 
John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Who is the one who says, no, I will tell you who he is. It's God the Father. This is my beloved son. God the Father is the one who breaks the secret, not Mary. You know, what, what does Mary say publicly? The only thing we know that Mary said publicly about Jesus, do whatever he tells you. Everything else Mary says is private, right? You know, do whatever he tells you. So there's a profound mystery here about silence, about the way in which God himself unfolds the plan. Mary, is she's the handmaid. She's not in charge. She's not the head of the family. She's not the one who goes out and proclaims the good news to everyone. She says, yes, she's obedient. She's humble and she's silent. That's the best I can do. <laughs> That's great. Doctor, thank you for your beautiful uh, reflections tonight. Uh, I, I've got to echo James in the chat. He says, you're making this the best advent ever. So we're looking forward to continuing this with you next Praise week. God. Could you close us out in prayer tonight? And then thank, we all thank God for uh, the miraculous preservation of your voice tonight to be with us. And my family's like, how are you going to do it? Like, how are you going to do it? And so God wants us to have a good advent. Okay, thank you, God. All right. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you for coming to save us, for freeing us from our sin and from all oppression. Help us during this advent to receive your word with love, humility, and obedience and to respond with our own yes, that we may become your children, your holy ones, and that we may, when the time is right, proclaim the good news of salvation to others. And we give you all glory and praise as we say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, never shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.